0: By the year 2020, the Chinese government hopes to have a new social ranking system fully implemented. This is something I've spoken about from a few different angles on past episodes of the show, but the basic concept is that China is combining their ubiquitous surveillance systems, their centrally controlled economy, and their heavily managed and censored internet to give a number, a ranking, to all 1.4 billion people living in the country. This number will grow and shrink like a credit score, and it will operate in a similar way way to a credit score, except instead of representing someone's credit worthiness, how good a bet they are, basically, if you're thinking of loaning them money, this score will take numerous metrics into consideration. Among those metrics are credit worthiness, how responsible with money they've been in the past, but also what they shop for at the grocery store, who they hang out with, and what they search for online. The score is intended to represent how loyal they are as citizens and how quote-unquote good they are as human beings, good in this case being measured by the standards of the authoritarian Chinese government, which has some very specific ideological positions on a great number of things, many of which do not always align terribly well with an individual's priorities or even their well-being. This number, determined by these numerous metrics, are intended to more or less gamify the act of being a good Chinese citizen, and there are rewards for attaining a higher score. You might get VIP seating at certain events, or access to special privileges in social settings and on transportation, and you might get discounts on your rent or your groceries. Likewise, if you have a low score, you may have to pay more for the same products and services. You could be banned from using the train or ride-sharing apps or the library. And you might even be banned from living in certain buildings or neighborhoods or even leaving the country. This system, which is already partially implemented, In small-scale trials around the country, but also as a partial, incomplete system that's been recently applied to certain Chinese celebrities, one of whom actually went missing, as her score was publicly reset to zero. The government released information that she had been involved in some kind of tax fraud, and her family assumed that she'd been black-bagged by the government, and either imprisoned or subjected to some kind of gulag-style re-education program. Adjusting her score in this way gave the government a method of signaling to the public that this person was a bad citizen, and therefore whatever happens to her is probably justified. China is arguably the furthest along and has the grandest ambitions when it comes to this kind of social quantification program. But other countries and other non government entities are attempting to do the same, if for different ends. This personal information that's being gathered about people so enthusiastically and in such large quantities is an irresistible prize for entities that usually have to make do with far smaller chunks of data, which even then they're typically only allowed to use for the most mundane and indirect of purposes. The way the modern world is shaping up, though, is leading to some strange parallels between otherwise seemingly orthogonal groups like the ostensibly open social networks of the Western world and the very closed authoritarian governments of parts of the Eastern world. In this case, for instance, Facebook is undertaking a similar program to that of the Chinese. And while they're not using their user score to set rent prices or lock people away in gulags, not yet anyway, they are using combinations of behaviors and other metrics to determine who is reliable and who is not which in turn can help the platform's algorithms determine whose posts should be seen, and how frequently, and who is less reliable in some way, relegating their posts, their shares, their likes to second-tier status. It will almost always be far less of a big deal what a company like Facebook thinks of you compared to what your own government thinks of you. But considering the space that social networks have carved out for themselves in our social lives, in our consumption habits, in our business and professional lives, it would kind of be a big deal to get on Facebook's bad side, wouldn't it? I mean, even if you don't use Facebook that much, there's still a chance that you use Instagram or WhatsApp or one of the dozens of other services and subservices that Facebook owns or is heavily invested in, either directly or indirectly. So while yes, being blackballed on Facebook would not be anywhere near the same thing as being blackballed and then potentially blackbagged by the Chinese government, it still wouldn't be a picnic. You would have access to far fewer tools and would enjoy a far smaller potential reach, both in your social life and in your professional life. As far as they're saying right now, at least, Facebook is not planning to use this social score to start booting low-scoring people off their network or to elevate those with high scores to some other heavenly social plane. But it kind of makes sense that they would at some point, doesn't it? What's a step up from being verified, after all? Maybe it's a bigger, more public score that ranks not just the truthfulness or popularity of individual posts, but our overall behavior, measured by metrics they consider to be important, aggregated into a unified number that tells the online world, at first just Facebook properties, but perhaps others after that. They build an API that allows other services to make use of this reliability score that they've put together. A score that tells everyone how good we are, how worthy of attention, of investment, of having our voices heard, how amplified or muffled we should be, how much access we should have. What I'd like to talk about today is a shift that is taking place in some corners of the tech world, at least in part, as a consequence of this sort of human quantification Today I will be talking about selling privacy. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. If you find yourself in North America sometime between September 2018 and September 2019, you might consider coming out to one of my tour stops. I'll be speaking in 24 or so different cities around the United States and Canada, and I'd love to see you if you could make it out. You can find out more information about these various tour stops and the tour in general, and you can also get your tickets, if applicable, at becomingtour.com. All right, let's get back to the show. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from Fast Company, and it's entitled, Forget the New iPhones, Apple's Best Product is Now Privacy. This piece was published alongside a flurry of other similar but not the same pieces about privacy and security derived from the various interconnected facets of the technology world. There were abundant articles published about the Google-owned web browser, Chrome, for instance, and a decision that the Chrome team made to auto-login people to their browser using their Google account, which is being seen by privacy advocates as a very anti-privacy act of betrayal. One that defies Google's own Chrome privacy guidelines. Guidelines that they later updated after the first wave of outcry about the change. And according to information that was just released today, on the day that I'm recording this, they may be considering backtracking on that, or at least making it an opt-in or opt-out sort of thing that you can turn on or off. But a lot of people are still upset about this, as it makes logging in with one's Google account automatic which could be an issue for those wishing to remain anonymous while browsing. There were also pieces about Facebook's ad platform being used by businesses to target potential employees in a discriminatory fashion. Articles about AT&T sharing their customers' information with data brokers. An update about social network-based data mining efforts that allowed foreign entities to influence U.S.-based elections by encouraging certain groups, African Americans in particular to not vote, and lots of new information about recently implemented and potential next-step legislation in the European Union, which would further clamp down upon entities or actions impugning upon the privacy of the individual, including public figures who would traditionally be more exposed to such scrutiny than the average Joe. And then amidst all those very important tech and privacy-related stories, there were tons of light, fluffy pieces about the new iPhone and the new Apple Watch. These reviews, these works of experiential, hands-on, photo-heavy geekdom served as pockets of fresh air within the larger fog of worry and discomfort and confusion and concern. Now, up front, I should say that I currently own an iPhone and... I like it. It's a nice phone. I've switched back and forth between the iPhone model of the day and various different types and brands of Android phones over the years. But that's my bias here. I use Apple products alongside my iPhone. My laptop is a 13-inch MacBook Pro. I like both products, but I'm not brand loyal to Apple. There's a lot that I would change given my druthers. I buy from other companies when I think that their offerings are better in a particular product cycle. And I think there are a lot of good reasons to buy something other than an Apple product in every single category in which they compete. They are seldom the only good choice for an individual's needs, despite the impressive branding work that they have done that might convince us otherwise. Now I wanted to get that out of the way because I'm about to tell you some things about Apple that will make them look very good, at least at first, but which are indicative of larger concepts that are at play, not just their own beneficence or ideological goodness or superiority. Keep that in mind as we work through these concepts. I am definitely not trying to sell you on Apple as a company, but there are some pretty neat things that they are doing that most other companies in the tech world are not, or at least not as well. And pointing those things out is one of the best ways to highlight those larger issues so that we can identify and discuss them separately disentangled from Apple and any other technology company. So Apple as a company has for a long while been associated with the production of higher end products. They're generally not making the highest end pro-level tools. They have at times produced very impressive pro-level media rigs and powerful consumer gadgets that can be subbed in For pro stuff in a pinch, but they are usually instead seen as the company that makes the most polished products on the market, the consequence of a unified vision, and the vertical integration of components. They pull as much as possible inward, from the processors to the software to the packaging, to ensure that it all tells the same story. And so each little bit works perfectly with each other little bit. Now, this is something that is incredibly difficult to do in any industry, but especially in the world of personal electronics, where the majority of laptops and phones are still riddled with little logos and labels because there are numerous interests involved, all of which want to leave their outward-facing mark. Intel makes the processor, Microsoft makes the operating system, Lenovo makes the laptop shell, and they all want their logo on the finished product. So the new portable that you buy is less unified than it could be and is often slathered with the names of the entities involved because these devices have been produced in the traditional multi-interest fashion. There are definitely advantages to that approach, but there are also downsides. And those are downsides that Apple tends to avoid. Now, Apple's products still use components made by other companies, but they've structured their deals so that those companies are generally nameless, white-label product providers. And Apple has invested over the years in slowly but surely replacing even those practically nameless outside producers with their own in-house controlled replacements. So companies like Foxconn can make their fortune aligning their production with that of Apple, assembling or building some component or another for the iPhone. But for all of these partner companies, there's the ever-present threat that Apple will take another step toward total independence and, for instance, develop their own processors like they began doing with their A4 system-on-a-chip hardware, which they designed in-house back in 2010 for use in their first iPad tablet and later in the iPhone 4 and the fourth generation iPod Touch devices. Before that time, they were choosing from pretty much the same selection of chips available to all other device makers each year. But designing their own and then farming out the manufacturing of those chips that they designed to companies like Qualcomm and Samsung gave them more control over how that specific piece worked with their larger body of hardware. And with their other internal components and their intended layout for those components and the software that these components would run. There are pros and cons to this type of monofocused rigidity, of course. Apple, at times, experiences production slowdowns because they're using hardware that is purpose-designed and manufactured, which means they can't just buy up some other company's extras if they come up short because of a production issue or they find themselves selling too many of something, with a gap between selling out and being able to get more on the shelves. It also means the cost of their components... At least at first, until they can achieve new scale and pay back the R&D costs of those components, they'll typically be higher. In the longer term, they do tend to make way more per component than most other companies, and their profit levels per device reflect this. They made an estimated $357 profit per $999 iPhone X in 2017, which is a gross profit margin of 64%, which is an absolutely insane number for a newer device and about five times what other device makers like Samsung earn per smartphone sold. And those profit margin numbers tend to go up as their R&D investments are paid back and their manufacturing of parts benefits from economies of scale, reducing the individual costs associated with components and with certain aspects of the assembly line process. Beyond the pure dollars and cents, though, this sort of walled garden rigidity, deciding that they know the correct way to do things always, and therefore they don't need to buy this hot new piece of hardware from this other company. They will tell us which way the tech world is going. Because they take that stance, they're in a really good position to strike a confrontational pose and to be able to force the rest of the world, especially the tech world, to kind of follow their lead. They have built up enough of a reputation and produced enough products and services that people like that they're able to consistently shape the conversation and delineate the path that new technologies tend to take. 3G and LTE, two transmission standards for wireless services, were not considered to have fully arrived until Apple added them to their iPhone line. Apple removed the headphone jack from their phones and the rest of the industry began to follow suit, opting for wireless everything instead. Apple went full screen with their phones, removing extraneous buttons and other non-screen design elements, but they left a notch up top, an ugly little thing that is nonetheless very purposeful if you're wanting to scan users' faces, and if you hope to add a bunch of novel augmented reality and photo effects to your front-facing cameras. They led with this questionable application of new features, and the smartphone world fell into lockstep behind them. Notably, Apple usually is not the first to make these moves. They don't typically invent these new things that they introduce, but because of their singular focus and scale, and because they tend to make new features very practical and seamless, rather than making them feel like a last-minute thoughtless addition, their application of such features are often the ones that shift the industry in a new direction. Apple has had plenty of missteps alongside their prophetic introductions, of course. Not every product is an iPhone, iPad, or Apple Watch. Not every new introduction carves out a successful, profitable niche. And not every move proves to be prescient and good, even with time. I have one of those MacBook Pros with the four USB-C ports and one of those little touchscreen toolbars instead of a row of numbered F keys and an escape button. I see what they're aiming for with both of these changes, and I think with time, the USB-C ports, at least, will prove to have been a smart evolution. But the touch bar seems a little wonky and gimmicky to me. It's a solution looking for a problem, a whiz-bang, nifty-seeming point of differentiation that probably made bigger waves as a novelty than it ever will as a truly useful innovation. Apple's history is riddled with touch bars, just as it's filled with iPhones. The trouble is knowing which is which in the moment, at the height of full-blown branding-focused marketing efforts that make both Eventual winners and losers look about the same through contemporary eyes. Each new focus or feature is stuck in an Apple tech world superposition, generally until at least a year later, when we can see how that new whatever has been used, how the industry has followed or not followed its lead, and what the next step might be, whether that nifty new whatever will be evolved further, or whether it will be left behind for something even more novel. And that brings us back to that Fast Company article. The thesis statement of this piece is that Apple today is selling some really neat things, but their biggest success, their most distinctive value proposition, is their focus on privacy. If you don't research this topic for a living, or if you're not a big tech head pouring through the latest happenings in this intertwined bundle of industries... I can't blame you for not knowing that this was a thing, for not thinking privacy when you think of Apple, and to instead fixate on their glossy marketing and beautifully packaged gizmos. This slant toward privacy has been baked into their corporate DNA for a while now, though, and it was nudged even further in that direction as the tech world began to tilt towards services rather than pure hardware about a decade ago the world began to shift from at-home hardware to cloud-based alternatives we moved from tangible mediums to digital downloads and streaming and throughout that transition apple began making adjustments to its unified walled garden hardware and software infrastructure to ensure that its user base was protected isolated even at times this meant protecting them from police search and seizure as they upped their cryptographic security and increased the number of fail-safes to ensure private data wouldn't fall into the wrong hands, should a phone be stolen or lost. At times, this stance has put Apple in opposition with police investigations and the FBI. And in each case, Apple seems to have, as far as we know at least, sided with the individual, with their customers, over these other entities. As Apple was making this secure walled garden ecosystem a selling point in part for the convenience of everything just working well together, and in part because it put their users first over other entities that might want to tap into those users as a customer base, much to the chagrin of some developers and some law enforcement entities, as they were doing that, the rest of the world was doubling down on a couple of business models that are often used in parallel and which have come to dominate a large portion of the tech world in the post-2000 early to mid-internet era. Advertising and big data, they evolved in different ways and often for different purposes, but as a pair, they have come to define the modern mobile internet. Advertising allows online entities from websites to social networks to apps to earn money by selling the attention of their users, Big data allows similar entities to collect information in huge quantities about their users and then to derive meaning from all of that data. Used in parallel, these big data sets allow entities like Facebook to sell increasingly well-aimed ads that will be shown to their users, leveraging their internal collection of data as a unique value proposition over other potential vectors through which advertisers might broadcast their message to their intended audience. Other companies like Google and Amazon do the same, leveraging their own collections of different sorts of data to sell more ads, make more money, and up their data mining game, which then in turn increases their ad profitability. These larger companies are then able to increase the scale of their scaffolding, spreading their tendrils all around the internet, even when we are not actively using Facebook or Google or Amazon. Little pieces of code follow us around, track our actions, our purchases, our clicks, and our incomplete search field entries, and aggregate that information into larger and larger stockpiles of data that they can then turn around and sell to the highest bidder in the form of ads that allow corporations and politicians and anyone else who has something to sell to reach us in highly specific, highly segmented, highly manipulative ways. The incentives inherent in our version of capitalism have made it prudent, made it existentially logical to become increasingly more brazen and invasive when it comes to collecting this type of data. The network that can sell the most granularly defined, well-packaged collection of user attention can sell access to us, the people using their services and platforms, will make more of the multi-billion dollar prize, will take a bigger slice of that pie. And it's the nature of a corporation to survive and grow infinitely large. So it makes perfect logical sense that things would evolve in this direction. Even if many people involved in that growth from the bottom to the top of the tech world pyramid might find the consequences of this logical outcome troublesome for a variety of reasons. And the outcome, unfortunately, is one that we are all now familiar with. We live in a world where all of our devices track us all the time, whether we know they are or not. Our devices listen for sounds when we think they're turned off, so they can track our TV-watching behavior based on what they can hear in our home. Our smart devices, introduced as time- and effort-saving innovations, have been marketed so heavily because they allow the companies that connect all of our devices together to our homes, to our verbal questions and conversations, unparalleled access to currently unmonetized, unaggregated data aspects of our lives. Those last private spaces are being sliced up and quantified and sold to the highest bidder. And this isn't happening because of some mastermind's evil machinations or anyone's desire to mess with our mental well-being. It's happening because it's the natural consequence of the way that we have built our economy, our online ecosystem, and our social spaces. And as all of this is going down, Apple finds itself in the nearly unique position among massive tech companies that are valued in the hundreds of billions of dollars, at least, to not have to play that game. Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google and a bunch of other companies, is diversified in a sense, but it is still heavily reliant on ads to fund all of those other projects. Facebook is an attention merchant through and through. Everything that they do is predicated on mining data and selling ads. Amazon sells tons of stuff and makes a lot of money from their web services offerings, but an increasing amount of their revenue is tied directly or indirectly to collecting data, knowing what products to put in front of which customers, and selling ad space on their marketplace. Apple, though, makes the majority of their income From hardware. And what they don't make from hardware, they tend to make from software and services that run primarily on their hardware. They've built what is at times an almost annoyingly insular world. And that's one of the reasons that many people, myself included, periodically prefer Android and other operating systems over the monoculture that Steve Jobs built. But in a moment like this, where the world at large and the biggest, most powerful entities in it are trying to creep on us all the time, trying to tap us for resources, to track us so that they can sell our actions and information and attention and location to random entities, hoping to sell us more nonsense, that insularity, that walled garden, actually begins to look kind of appealing especially since the amount of customer harvesting that takes place within that garden is very, very limited compared to what happens outside of those walls. And that shift, that focus on insularity, has only become more defined. As soon as it became clear that this was a selling point, not just a point of differentiation that aligned well with their other efforts, Apple doubled down on it, making it a key part of their brand. They added little details that should not matter, but which do, in the context of the larger tech ecosystem. Their laptops, for instance, automatically shut down the microphone when you close the lid. It's a little detail that should be meaningless, if not pointless, but right now, it's strangely comforting, as is the fact that my hard drive is encrypted by default, and that Apple's default browser, Safari, has ad blocking and malware prevention built right in. In... A tech world that is super saturated with ad delivery mechanisms and invasive big data collecting excuses, this approach seems revelatory. But it's not, not really. The online world and increasingly even our private moments at home, tracked in numerous little ways we're mostly unaware of, they should not feel like they do. But here we are. Our online infrastructure took a path that gave us unlimited free everything. But all that free stuff had to be paid for somehow. And that somehow turned out to be monetizing our attention and our personal information. We didn't exactly sign up for this, not consciously, not fully aware of what it meant anyway, because who reads those terms of service contracts? No one. But we also didn't struggle terribly hard against it, because, I mean, look at all of the free stuff that we got in the trade-off. In recent years in particular, though, A tragedy of the commons situation has come into being, where companies have become increasingly overbearing in how they capture all of this data, and that's led to the over-harvesting of user data and attention. These efforts to strip us of our privacy and personal information are not subtle anymore. They have grown and grown, and these entities have pushed the envelope further and further to see what they can get away with. We've only just now reached a point where a large portion of the population have noticed and started to push back, but we're still far from the majority of mainstream users deleting their social media apps in protest, or learning to more capably lock down their phones and other devices. On small levels, and in some communities, yes, we are seeing some positive change in that direction. But we are still a long way from any real significant change that would cause these over-harvesters to notice and rethink their business models, though. While it's nice that Apple is offering up basic privacy protections to users, and that really is wonderful, I don't want to diminish that. But while it's nice, that should be standard. It should be the basic level of expectation that we have for the companies that produce our most commonly used devices, devices that have become very intimate and personal to us. We shouldn't have to buy back our privacy in this way. We shouldn't have to buy an expensive iPhone or other high-end product just to be able to live our lives without being spied on, followed, watched 24-7. On top of that, it's important to keep the bigger context in mind, which in this case includes all the bad stuff That Apple has done to achieve the success that they have attained. From working their badly paid outsourced laborers to the point of suicide, to playing games with the tax system, to playing the same tech world corporate games that every other tech giant plays, like getting all of their users to sign away their firstborn every time they want to download an app. They're not angels, they're not devils either. Apple is a company that is set up in such a way that they can afford to take the opposite route of their tech industry competition. And that is wonderful for us in a lot of ways, but it's also prudent to be aware that their approach in this regard could very well change if the financial incentives to do so become powerful enough. In a potential future where Apple has become more of a pure services company, which could conceivably happen someday, if their profits, which is a corporation's only true existential motive, were to be challenged and they could get back on top by selling everything that they have on each and every one of us and flipping a switch that would collect more, way more, of everything about us, I suspect that they would drop this privacy thing and do all of that in an instant. And again, it's not because they're evil any more than any of these other companies collecting this data are evil. It's just the nature of this industry and our economic system. That doesn't make it right any more than it makes it wrong, but it does make it an uncomfortable reality and one that could come to include Apple as well should certain variables change. It's important to remember that just as it's important to ask ourselves whether it makes sense for us to have to buy back our privacy in the first place. You could certainly argue that we get plenty in return for all of this exposure, for having our space invaded in this way. I personally would be willing to pay for Gmail, for instance, but I also think it's nice that the same service is there for anyone who wants to use it for free, not just for folks who can afford it and who are willing to pay for it. At the same time, The underlying premise of our economic system requires that we flesh out these sorts of economic root systems to make sure that we know how we're going to make money anytime we want to build something. And there are other components of that same system that encourage growth forever and as big as possible, and still others that can help us cast aside any moral doubts that we might have about actions that we take if it means earning more money for ourselves or for our shareholders. I'll be interested to see what happens in this space in the coming years. There are other players here, from software makers like the open source Linux and its spin offs, which have been experiencing a popular resurgence of late, to hardware makers like OnePlus and Fairphone, both of which offer slightly different takes on doing it better, basically taking Apple's privacy and user focus and amplifying that ideology even further in certain ways. That said, Apple operates on such a scale today that even the smallest of positive changes that it makes can have outsized impact. Fairphone might produce a phone that is overall in almost every way better for the environment and better for the people that are strung out along the manufacturing chain for that device. But for all the good they do, if Apple makes one tiny, relatively less impressive change to their massive manufacturing process when it comes to ethical production or resource usage or recycling or reclaiming or refurbishing or anything else, that tiny little adjustment will have far more impact because of how big they are. They're kind of like IKEA in that way. Their sprawling size allows them to achieve a whole lot more just by making tiny tweaks to their massive bulk. So, while it's helpful and beneficial to have these other more refined and purified versions of what we might aim for, like the Fairphone, at the moment there are a lot of gains to be realized by nudging companies like Apple ever further toward something that is better for the modern tech ecosystem. And all interested parties connected to that ecosystem, which today means just about everyone and everything, very much including us. It's important to understand how all of these seemingly disconnected pieces are actually connected. It's important to understand the incentives that are at play and how various entities are behaving based on those incentives. And it's vital that we pay attention to the levers that are being pulled, which could indicate a change in stance or incentives Future changes, both negative and positive for the user, could occur without much fanfare and without a significant shift in these companies' branding efforts. So it's important that we're able to look beyond the brand, beyond the marketing, beyond brand loyalty, so we can see clearly who is dancing to what tune and what their next steps might be. If you're enjoying Let's Know Things, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash letsknowthings. There are also other ways to monetarily contribute. You can find a link to those options like Venmo and PayPal and such at letsknowthings.com. And if you're keen to help support the show but don't have a whole lot of money to spare, there are non-monetary ways to do so as well. Taking a moment to leave a quick review up on Apple Podcasts is very much appreciated, as is sharing the show with a friend who you think might enjoy it, or sharing it on your social network of choice. Any and all flavors of support, non-monetary and monetary, are very much appreciated. Thank you so much to everyone who has already contributed in some way, and thanks in advance if you're considering doing so in the future. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Modern Ethics in 77 Arguments by Peter Catapano and Simon Critchley, though those authors are more like the curators of this book because the book is actually a collection of 77 different essays, different articles that were previously published in the Stone column in the New York Times, which is a column focusing on ethics and especially modern interpretations of different ethical concepts. So everything from existence to morality and religion, to human nature, to government, citizenship, guns, gender, race, family, the way that we eat, what the future will look like and what that means... There are a wide variety of topics tackled in this book, and each of the essays is relatively concise. It doesn't go on and on, so you can pick this up and read it chapter by chapter, and after reading one, still have plenty of time to sit with that idea and think about it, which I highly recommend. But importantly, this book is also very accessible and interesting and entertaining even, even if you have no background in philosophy and ethics in any of this. If all of these ideas are completely new, the information will still be presented in a way that makes a lot of sense. It is something that will be useful to anyone who picks it up. So if that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Modern Ethics in 77 Arguments by Peter Catapano and Simon Critchley. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. While there, you might consider signing up for my twice-monthly newsletter, but you can also find a list of the books that I've written. My blog is at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a list of cities and dates and get tickets if you care to for the tour that I'm currently on around North America at becomingtour.com. And feel free to reach out and say hello on social media. I am at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and so on. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.